scriptures or anything, right? Just straight up. Mark chapter 15. Um, there's going to be a lot of setup to today's um, uh, uh, sermon. Um, and so just kind of sit with that. And then we're going to come back to Mark chapter 15. Um, I'm going to go ahead. Justin, can you? I'm going to pull up my whiteboard really quick. It's getting real. <laughs> All right, I think we're good. So here's where I want us to go. Um, you all know we're in this series called Me We, um, and it's the idea that our collective, we as Common Ground Northeast, should shape and inform and influence who we are as individuals, but also our individuality and the perspectives that we bring to the table should shape and form our collective we. This is a reciprocal relationship and we're celebrating, we're teaching on it. We're trying to surface voices that maybe get less heard than they should and make sure that we understand that this is the way God has brought us to be a community of every tribe, tongue, and nation. But then um, also we wanted to recognize that there are some things that tend to divide us. And so today we are gonna talk about one of those. Now, if you remember, this sermon is building off my last sermon that happened two weeks ago. It's a part two on politics and Jesus. That's about the response I got the first time, right? Just nervous laughter and uh, a little bit of silence. Uh, next time we'll get a clap going for that action. But but listen, we've never really done a direct, um, you know, and this could have its own series like, right? This should have probably its own series at some point. But in the midst of our purposes, we're talking about the fact that, that we, um, you know, as, as we talked about two weeks ago, we have a heavenly citizenship that sometimes comes in conflict with our earthly citizenship. And we're navigating the conflict on, and, and the relationship between those two things. In fact, as I was writing this sermon, I realized there was some other work, some pre-work that had to be done, and that's where we ended up with the last sermon. So it, I can't stress enough, if you missed that sermon, you will likely have some sense of like, ah, I'm a little bit lost. If you want the fullness of it, go back, listen to that one, then come back and, and re-enter the stuff that we're talking about, because I'm going to assume some of that knowledge. But today we're going to talk more specifically about our cultural moment. So think about that. We're in America in the 21st century with a political system that mostly, not only, but mostly only recognizes a two-party political system that we call conservative and progressive. Now, if you can't see this, that's because it's gibberish, representing issues that might be held by either side, um, but I'm not naming them necessarily in this one today. And so these two ideas come together. I, in, in learning and teaching and, and studying this, I didn't realize America, not, not intentionally, but has almost always defaulted in its history to a two-party political system. It's almost always been true since the beginning of America. And it has been some version of this. It's morphed and changed names. It's even traded names in a couple of instances. But we have these ideologies. So I'm not going to use Republican and Democrat. If I do that, sorry, it's a, it's a, a miss. But conservative, as in those who conserve and progressive, as in those who attempt to progress things. And so as we look at this, we want to recognize, I want to recognize that either of these have different positions and issues that they um, take positions on. Sorry, issues that they take position on. But there's a couple of things that we have to know about just the makeup, the, the structure of what we're looking at because it has an A and a B category that slots you into one or the other. As, as long as there is a one or the other, there is going to be an opposition in the midst of that. And so we have a decreased level of nuance on positions, which is not actually representative of the American people. 
you have an either or, whereas most of the American people are very nuanced and they're like, well, I'm not fully in this. I'm kind of a somewhat of this and a little bit of that. We have gradients in our opinions, but when you have an A and a B option, it doesn't always let you recognize those nuances. This two-party system erodes collaboration between parties, often renders it ineffective if you want to get anything done so you feel you have to choose one side or the other. And let me say that both are inconsistent in their ideology as progressing or conserving for the sake of pandering to one voting block or another. They're both guilty of that. Do you understand what I mean? They'll give on this value in order to gain a group of people that will, that, that will, that will be on their side if they, if they take a position that's not consistent with progressing or conserving, all right? So, so the question here then is how does this affect us? Well, we have both conservatives and progressives in here. And, and the likelihood is this. You think you're outnumbered by the rest of the group in the room. I know we have both because when I step on one side or the other, I get a text or an email or a side conversation because somehow, some way, we have, I would say, somewhat, somewhat successfully, and you might disagree with this, um, uh, uh, and, and you hear this term, we've, we're not quite progressive enough for progressives. We're not quite conservative enough for conservatives. And so we live in this world inside of the middle this tension that doesn't quite satisfy anyone in any of their political preferences, no matter which side you happen to grow on. And I think it's worth mentioning, I mentioned this two weeks ago, I grew up in, an almost, in a very unaware political environment. I cannot tell you to this day what political assumptions my parents had growing up. They had no parties that they, uh, that they championed. They didn't talk about politics, at least in front of me, that I was ever aware of. There was no talk radio. There was no preferred news outlet. There was no news really being played. And so I come at you today, not with some sort of understanding or expertise on these things, but I wanna to appeal to you that my hope is that out of naivety, I can try, I can attempt to, all right, be as unbiased as possible, if that's possible, if it's possible, right? Okay, so, so I have this leaning towards a political disengagement. I'm gonna tell, I'm gonna place that inside of a, um, some categories for us all. As most of you know, I also didn't grow up in the church. And so I was very, very unaware that there were any political assumptions tied to any religious organization. That sounds like I was living underneath a rock today, right? Maybe I was. Because honestly, I did not know. I remember going to my small Baptist Bible college and seeing a poster on a wall that said the Young Republicans Club. And I'm standing amidst a group of people and I said, oh, that's wild. Is there like a Young Democrats Club too? They literally erupted in laughter at that statement. And I just like didn't want to out myself that I didn't know what was going on. So I was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. But I had to adjust something. There was something there that I did not realize there was a political assumption that in this context, Republicans and Christianity were overlapping. But then fast forward a couple years and I'm hanging out in New Orleans and the pastor who um, was the head of the church that we were helping to plant there, I walk into his room and I mentioned this before, I walk into his office and I start, because of that other moment, I start with this. Hey, you know how most, Republic, or most Christians are Republicans? That was my starting question to get to my real question where he stops, he interrupts me and said, hold on, most of the Christians you've been around are Republicans. 
And I'm like Homer Simpson my way right back into the shrub. Like, I don't, I, don't, I don't have anything else to say to you because it was based off of that assumption. So my adjustment in the small Bible college went one way. Then the adjustment went the other way, standing in front of this pastor. And I realized there's maybe room for both of these two worlds in, in, in the way in which they overlap. Now, now um, apparently I was living under a rock. Now it seems impossible that anyone could ever miss any of these assumptions. And here's where I want you to kind of stop and take um, stock of where you're at. What are your Christian political assumptions? What's the experience that you've had growing up? What were the assumptions of the people, the family, the churches, or the lack of church, maybe, if you didn't grow up in church? What were they when you came into this? Some of you might affirm one narrative that they tend to be progressive. One might affirm the narrative that they tend to be conservative. One might be rebelling or recoiling from that assumption, is, is, a, is a lot of my guess. And as you interact with this, it's like your experiences may interpret these things as good assumptions, bad assumptions, and ugly assumptions. And it does get ugly, does it not? Okay, so last week, as I wanted to go all the way back to interacting with our relationship with the American citizenship as it pertains to our heavenly citizenship, I firmly wanted to end on the idea that our citizenship with America, in light of our heavenly citizenship, is temporal and meaningless, in as much as it is essential and extremely important right? It's not a, a lukewarm middle. It's like it is full on meaningless and extremely important. And so we are being asked to ride in the tension between those two. And what I'm going to do is the exact same thing today. So just right out the gate, there's my agenda. I'm going to ask you to ride on this tension between the two. And my job from here to the end of the sermon is to convince you why that's true, that we need to straddle the fence between meaningless and essential or conserving and progressing as we contextualize culturally in the moment that we live in. Okay, that's that's my goal. All right. Don't don't miss that. We have to recognize that the kingdom of God has been around a long time, well before America, will last well after America because it transcends America. And at the same time, you know, I just thought of this. Maybe, maybe one day future TikTok trends will say, how often do you think about the American empire? And you're like, I don't, I don't know. Some of you who aren't on TikTok, you're like, I have no clue what he just referenced. And some people are going to be like, who? The what? There will be people who don't even remember the existence of it. And then there is this other side of this. That the frameworks and systems that we operate in politics are very real, have very real implications on people's lives here and now for both good and bad, for the detriment of some and the benefit of others. While some issues might be plain, might be neutral, might be obvious, so many are nuanced and tilted and often biased or weighted to benefit some people and not all. We see that is true. Amen. Amen. So at the same time, our political structure Democrat and Republican, or sorry, at the same time, our, our, our structure is a democratic republic, which invites you as citizens of this, this country to weigh in, to get involved, to produce your input via voting, 
via putting in representation through offices and the various um, uh, uh, roles that could be um, filled inside of our uh, country. And so one last thing that I want us to see before, before we do this, because we, since we have that, what do we do with that? Many countries don't offer that to its citizens. What do we do with that since we have that opportunity? Then one last thing that I want to say before we jump right into the scriptures, before we read Mark 15, it's simply this. There are, um, uh, in the history of, of the church, over centuries, there are entire scriptures, and this, this maybe it's surprising to us, scriptures, traditions, frameworks, systematic theologies, and those who would say we absolutely, biblically should not engage our religion with any kind of political opinion. And there are some that say you absolutely should, based on this book, the scriptures, 100% should by all means. You are not a good Christian if you do not engage in the culture and politics with your religious convictions. You see that both of those exist, and there are traditions inside of that. And so whether or not we should or shouldn't engage the culture and politics within them is actually a historical church debate. Think about that. And whatever assumption you bring to the table as to what we should or we shouldn't is actually just that. It's an assumption. And it was shaped by your family. It was shaped by your church background, possibly. Whatever it is that brought you up as a conviction in dealing with your religious understanding and how that should interact with the culture, some people think that we should not do that. And some people think that we should. And there's entire um, uh, frameworks to follow that. And so this is what I want to do. I want to do one last um, moment where we get to maybe evaluate ourselves. There's a little picture up there with these circles. Now I chose circles because they're friendlier, okay? Um, and you all know how much I love a Venn diagram. So we're going to do it like this. And what I want you to see here is that we have these circles that represent options or, uh, let me say, uh, postures you could take in your religious conviction as it pertains to politics. Um, but uh, there's a fifth one that's represented in that right. Notice the overlap in the middle. Not only is there a, a continuum and a gradient that we could talk about, but there's actually in-between postures. So you could be directly engaged, you could be indirectly engaged, and there's something in between, right? You could be indirectly, you could be, uh, oh, that, that green one's supposed to be directly, wait, hold up. No, we're good, we're good, we're good, we're good. And so this is what I want us to see. I'm going to give you a quick little um, definition. The one to the left, directly disengaged. You are intentional in your understanding that you think the culture is inherently bad and we should not let that be uh, uh, the way in which our Christianity expresses itself, okay? When I say the example, it's gonna be obvious to you. You'll, you'll get what I mean. But you believe that you are not supposed to mix those two, that the culture, including politics, is irredeemable. Or maybe you think it's generally not helpful, just in a practical way, but sometimes we have to engage it because there's extreme situations that you have to get involved in. Okay, so, so just north of here, we have Amish um, communities that have chosen to remove themselves from the culture. They don't believe that that's the best use of their Christianity. Do you see Anabaptist traditions or monastic groups would say that we don't believe we should engage in these things. It's either not helpful practically or we believe in our Christian conviction we shouldn't according to the scriptures. 
okay? Then indirectly disengage, which means you are generally disengaged because you either have little conviction on how it should apply, maybe you are hopeless in the way that it might actually have anything to do, that it might actually do good, or maybe it's just laziness. And I've definitely been tempted there. Or maybe you just stay out of it because you think you transcend it all. You're above it all. And so I don't want to involve myself in those things. I'm, I'm kind of keeping a civil peacekeeping. Um, and one of the terms, well, to, to become some sort of neutral centrist is often the attempt. But that's not often the way it happens. It becomes a default disengagement. And so non-denominational traditions tend to fit in this group. Ecumenical groups that try to get along cross-denominationally would also fit into this one and the next one. They're about the same, I would say. I see both. You're indirectly, now the next one, indirectly engaged. This is often, uh, oh, maybe you believe that by living your faith as an individual, in your job, in your neighborhood, that's enough. I don't need to leverage a vote. I don't need to vote in any representative necessarily, but by my Christian presence, my faithful presence in the community, that's enough. So I'm going to indirectly engage the culture, but not use politics as a means to do that. You can also be directly engaged in a way that says, um, in a few different ways. You believe that your intentional influence with your religious convictions will form the culture and political landscape. So you do apply your vote, um, but you're doing it in a much lighter way. In, in, in some way, you believe that your nation will be improved by affirming Christian values through the political system. Do you see the difference between that and being indirect? Not just accidental, but you do believe your influence should, should be represented with your vote and the way in which you um, engage politically. Some believe that we should be um, that, that there is a conviction and a mandate by God to engage this thing in a way that forces laws, that creates laws that force people to do and act in Christian ways, even though they disagree with a Christian understanding ethic. They have not agreed to follow Jesus, but, um, uh, but in some way, if we can force people to follow these things by making laws that agree with my Christian conviction, then I am somehow Christianizing the world around me. You all have seen examples of that too, right? Are we, are we together? All right, all right. Um, and then uh, I'm going to refer to um, someone's uh, a book by uh, a writer, Patrick Schreiner. He kind of gives three options moving further to the right and into that little dark side that I'm going to point out the right end. Patrick Schreiner is an author and a teacher on the subject who creates these categories. Then there is a type of Christianity that thinks we should create a fusion of Christianity American life that they should coalesce and that the political process should be overhauled to serve God. The laws of the United States should be explicitly Christian. Do you see how it's kind of turning up the heat just a little bit more? Okay? That would be called a fusion kind of engagement. Then he said, so, so let's talk about both. Now this is going to be, I, I wasn't sure how I wanted to present this, but think of it this way. Both the religious right and liberation theologians believe this. Do you understand what I mean by those things? Both the religious right and liberation, they would be on opposite ends of this spectrum, both believe that we should use the laws to reflect and to overlap with my Christian conviction. Okay? And then, of course, you have the final one, which is dominion. Dominion Christianity, this is a complete conflation of God and country that advocates for it by force and violence if necessary when it is, uh, oh, when, when deemed necessary. 
Now let me give you an example of this because this would definitely be a type of nationalism that we saw on January 6th. An intentional dominion. By force we will take it. Based on their Christian convictions, if, if that's what you want to call them. And then we also have an example in history, 1096 and through 1291 in the Crusades, wherein we saw Christian um, uh, political entities come in and decimate places on, on the basis of Christianizing them. Okay, so do you see, I, I, that's, that's often its own little weird world in the right-hand side. So, so I want you to kind of think like we're, we're trying to go from left to right, right to left. Um, I don't mean those as political terms, but in this kind of way, how do we think we should engage this? With all of that said, I want to be able to tell you that Jesus clarifies it all with this one statement, but he doesn't. But he does engage with political entities. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. This next part will go pretty fast. I know what our time looks like. Don't worry, I'm not missing that. Mark 15, 1 through 15, it says this. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin, again, all political entities, made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to who? Pilate. Pilate, are you the king of the Jews, he asked. Are you the king of the Jews? Now notice two things, the audience and the question being asked. Jesus is no longer standing in front of religious leaders. He is now standing in front of someone else. And this is actually one of the first times, at least in the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus stands before a political entity. He's standing in front of a Roman governing official and a political establishment. Keep in mind, as a representative of the state, listen to this. Pilate is not asking a spiritual theological question when he asks this. He's not coming to him and saying, are you the king like Messiah, the one who's been prophesied before in the Old Testament? He has no, no, absolutely no interest in him being a Messiah. He's asking a different question. And the word king is not an allegory. It's not a spiritual reference. It is very specifically, are you a political leader who might have an impact on the socio-political landscape that I am supposed to be running? Are you an opponent? So, so are you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, and Jesus' reply is gold. You have said so. Best one-liner maybe in the entire Bible. In the Greek, it's even more ambiguous. Check this out. It just says, you said. That's it. We filled in the rest of those words. Are you a king? You said. Emphasis on the you. Like, your words, not mine. I didn't say that. You said it. You said it. Tim Keller had a really cool um, commentary on this I wanted to mention. It says this, that, that Jesus answers not with a denial or affirmation, or another way to put it is that it is both a denial and an affirmation. The answer is yes and no. It says absolute, it is absolutely crucial, this is Keller, that you stay on that fence. If you want to follow Jesus at all, you cannot fall off one side or the other. And we could probably just amen that and walk out right now. But this isn't the only time Jesus does this. When Jesus is asked whether he should pay taxes, Jesus picks up a coin and he says to them, whose image is on this coin? And he say, they say, well, it's Caesar. It says, give to Caesar then what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Now, this is 
deliberately ambiguous, but it is also discreetly pointed. Because check this out, on the coin in that time was a picture of Tiberius Caesar and an inscription that said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. They call him the son of God. Remember that all the governments at this time, every single one of them, brings religion and the state together. Why? Because it's a way of consolidating power. Because it's a way of working together to support. It's like an agreement that I'm going to look out for you, you look out for me. We'll just bring these two things together. And Jesus seems to be not only creating a distinction between these two worlds, but a distinction between ultimate allegiances. Because by saying this, what he is saying is this coin has Caesar's image on it. Give it to Caesar. Give him a few coins. But my image is on you. You all bear the image of God. And so you give your ultimate allegiance to God, not to a Caesar. You see how simultaneously he's deliberately ambiguous, but he's also pointed in the address that he's using. I don't want to overstate the point, but Jesus, in doing this, not only gives us a model, but I love, again, Keller called it a Christian heritage of intentional ambiguity, of deliberate ambiguity. We have this to pull from. He makes clear where his allegiance are, and it is not to Caesar, though give to him what he deserves. Verse 3 goes on. It says, the chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. So watch this second thing that he does to engage him in the political um, uh, uh, person that he's standing from. As we see Jesus, whose power is unboundless. He responds to an unfair trial. He responds to false accusations and facing a threat of physical violence and death by crucifixion. What does he do with it? He makes a strong defense and jumps to his case. He's like, well, let me bust out my notes and tell you all the ways in which everyone has wronged me in the last few years. No, he doesn't do that. Does he pop in some spinach, beat up the bad guy and win the day? That's the narrative we're often given, right? Since childhood. The stronger good guy beats the strong bad guy. But he doesn't do that. He burns with rage and shoots lasers from his eyes because he's God. I, I even thought like he can go full Thanos on this and drop the moon on people, right? This could go in so many directions with the amount of power that the king of the cosmos has. He doesn't do any of these things, though he could. And Pilate is begging him. Check this out. He's begging him. Aren't you going to do something about it? Can you... Do some kind of political strategy. What is your move? What's your counter strategy? What game of chess are you playing, Jesus? Because if you're a king, you know we have a chess game that we're playing. And he doesn't do them. What leverage are you going to pull from your political capital? But he doesn't do it. Jesus has all the power in the universe to destroy them. And instead of operating under that narrative, he completely does a different one because he operates with a different governing system. Do you understand? He refuses to be... Heard. He refuses to engage his power in a way and his agency and it amazes Pilate. You can't say that he's being passive though. That's the thing is I think that the, often the critique just swings the other way. So he's just going to be passive and get beat up. It, it, be, be, Jesus lays down his right to be heard, his power and his agency to accomplish something. So this is what the next part says, verse 6. Now it was the custom of the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man named Barabbas 
was in prison with insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. Knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. He sees the political maneuvering. Verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas and said, what shall we do then? With the one you call the king of Jews and Pilate asked them, crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So Jesus deliberately and courageously remains ambiguous in that he is not aggressive or violent, but he is also not passive or withdrawn because Jesus chooses to use his power, presence, and authority to forgive. He chooses to use his power, presence, and authority to create a new way to engage in political power, operating according to this kingdom thing that he's doing by putting himself, check this out, intentionally in the way of violence for the benefit of other people. So he's deliberately ambiguous when it comes to the loyalties over here, but he is deliberately putting himself in between the people that he is, that are going to benefit from his ultimate death, burial, and resurrection. Oh, say, so, so, so he does so by substitution. He does so, in fact, to release Barabbas. You see that moment makes it so clear that a substitution is taking place because we have a known insurrectionist being let go, but behind the scenes, a spiritual trade is being made too. Spiritually, Jesus knows what his death, burial, and resurrection will accomplish, so sacrificially, he takes on, he absorbs the violence upon himself for the benefits of others. He's not being passive. This is an incredibly aggressive move for him to do. So, okay, so how do you apply this? I'll turn the corner and we'll, we'll talk about application here. Well, up to now, I've kind of intentionally and ambiguously not given you any real left or right, progressive or conservative answer. I'm intentionally trying to make sure that I'm not, I don't, not just because I don't want to take sides, because we're going to talk about justice in just a second. One thing that you do when you do this is like, we need this to be overly complicated. Take the simplicity away from it so that we understand that we're actually not operating in the midst of this that we operate adjacent to you. And so we talked about this in the preaching collective. There's gonna be people in here like, man, this is almost so convoluted. Can you just tell me what to do? Can you just tell me who to vote for? And then there's other people in here that are like, don't you dare tell me who to vote for. Don't, you absolutely better not tell me what I'm supposed to do politically. And then there's probably some of you who are in between possibly, right? And, and so both sides of that coin, I need you to know, all right, I'm not gonna tell you what to do, what politicians, to back or positions and issues to take. Um, but I do want us to, as we look at this, understand where we might fit, because I do think, um, though there are traditions and I wanna honor them, I don't think we're supposed to be, I, I, am, I am one who personally leans towards disengagement out of hopelessness, laziness, or some other reason. There's like a hopelessness I have often with this that I have to constantly tell myself, there are people hurting, you don't get to opt out. You have to opt into these things. So I don't think we can do that left-hand thing. We certainly cannot do the, the dominion idea, but even being directly engaged gets kind of questionable. It's too easy to, to jump over into that dominion phase. And so what I want us to see is a couple of convictions I feel like maybe I've taken and allow you 
um, to see maybe where you land. And so this is it. I do believe that if you take cues regularly from one side of a political spectrum or another, as in you have a preferred news outlet or talk radio or podcast, I don't know how all those things, I still kind of opt out of them, then you are probably being discipled by one of those entities. Let me take it even closer. If you're hearing, reading, listening to those outlets more than you're reading this, that's pretty obvious, amen? And so, so in 21st century American politics, it's way too small. So if you believe and you listen to these outlets, and not only are you listening, but you're like, that mostly agrees with the Bible, then you've got to come back and reread this thing. And on both sides of the coin. If you think that it mostly agrees with your convictions, it's not true. It's just too small to contain the kingdom of God. This A, B option is not big enough. America is not big enough. It can't contain it. It's going to live outside of it. You should feel politically homeless. You should feel politically homeless. It's not our home. Now, one question to ask is who is discipling you then, right? So ask those questions as you deal in those things. Which ideology is attempting to gain my affections? Who has something to gain from my loyalty. Second, I said this before in passing, but I think we're intending, we intentionally need to be wholly disloyal to any political party. All right, this is beyond just like opting out of them. This, I mean, you intentionally and aggressively are disloyal to whatever political parties exist, no matter what culture you live in. So that if, if you have a set of these, that, that this group up here is saying are all what we believe in a set of these, that this group up here all says, I believe these things, then the Christian ethic should intentionally say, mm, I like this, not that. Oh, yeah, we'll take a little bit of this. Maybe, maybe this one, but nope, not that one. And yeah, this is, this is definitely in the scriptures. I'll take that one, but nah, not going to take that one. And maybe this one does. And you're, you're literally just going back and forth, picking and choosing, because you're going to say, I'm not loyal to you. I'm not loyal to you. I will flip on you the moment you disagree with the kingdom of heaven, and you should be afraid of that. I will flip on these things. Wholly disloyal to any and all political parties, all right? And then listen to these last two testimonies as we close up, because I felt like they were beautifully stated. Again, coming from the book that, that I referenced earlier. Um, in, in most cities, the male-to-female ratio was 140 men to 100 females due to female infanticide. So they would get killed because they didn't have the same level of social capital that males had and wouldn't benefit the family as much as a male would. Well, Christianity pops in and says, nope, in fact, we'll come and take those babies. We'll receive all of your babies, just, just give them to us. And so because of this, women began to flock towards Christianity. Now, now, males in this time could have affairs while a woman would be uh, 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 killed, stoned, because of, of, of a similar thing. So there's this social disequity coming in and Christianity steps in and says to the male, you don't get to do that anymore. 
So again, women are flocking to Christianity. Christians wouldn't allow it. They recognize the humanity and dignity, the Imago Dei in all of them. Then later on, what you have is this early Roman emperor who's critiquing Christians because he's threatened by them. His name is Julian. You can look it up. And Julian is writing to his friend, complaining about Christianity. He says, our religion is not prospering. The Christian religion is growing and growing. Why, do we why don't we realize how much Christianity's success is due to their radical care for the poor? Christians do not just take of their own poor, they take care of the pagan poor too. Whereas it is obvious to everyone that our poor lack aid even from us. They were so good at caring for poor people that this guy's mad at them for growing. So the poor people started to flock to them because they could help. And their, their, their care was, I love that Keller said this, they are promiscuous in their social conscience. It's beautiful. And the Greeks care for the Greeks, the Jews care for the Jews, the African people here care for the Africans, but oddly the Christians just care for everyone. And so their community begins to build, it's growing. They care for them, they take them in, and all of a sudden they have widows who are left behind, they have babies who were abandoned, they have poor people coming in, and they have this entire social structure that is mixing men and women together, sitting at the table, that is mixing races together, sitting at this table, so that every tribe, tongue, and nation, based off of love and care, is now represented at the table. It wasn't perfect, but because of their care, they inevitably had this entire world wherein they live by their own ethic, and you can backtrack through those things, and if you're listening, you could see, oh, Republicans would probably agree with that, but not that. Oh, 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 Democrats could get on board with that part of the thing that they were doing, but probably not this thing or that. You see, they were doing this in their day, cutting and pasting, walking through this, and, and as a result, they were caring for people, loving people, and growing. And so here's the last thing I wanna to say to us. Third, that I do believe justice takes sides. You should know that if you've been around Common Ground enough. And so to do justice, to sow out godly wisdom, I do think it needs to be engaged. And sometimes we have to be loud about political positions. There are times when being neutral is not enough. Read MLK's letter from the Birmingham jail to understand that. Moderacy often can't get things done. And so when we see these things, it usually, when, when we want to opt out, it usually means that whatever the status quo is, it's helping you, it's favoring you, whether that be race or gender or socioeconomic status. The option to opt out is always a privilege. So I do believe that you use your right to vote. I do believe you use your political engagement, but I do think the ethic that guides that is that you put your political influence to advocate for those who are less fortunate. Every time, every time, instead of increasing your fortune, we as Christians are the substitutionary people that uniquely and intentionally place ourselves in the pathway between the oppressor and the oppressed. In the pathway of the violence and the one who is being beaten. In the pathway of the force of inequity and those who are not uh, uh, gaining an equitable status because of it, it is us that stands intentionally and sometimes aggressively at the, the middle ground of that to absorb it so that peace and equity would be restored to those who it has been taken away from. We're substitutes and we do it intentionally. And I want to pray for us. I know we've gone a little bit long. I think you all get why this one maybe had to be a little bit longer. 
But I do believe as we become this benevolent influence and use whatever means necessary that we have, minus violence and dominion, to engage with the civil life so that we see that Jesus or any other movement inside of Acts, it never resorts to violence, it never resorts uh, to force or to make or, or, or create an environment where people have to follow Christianity or else they are hurt as a result of it. Okay, so, so let's take a deep breath. Where is your me on the scale that we put up there? Where did you fall on the scale? Where is your me? If you had to come up here and be like, I lean in this direction or this one, if I had to put me up here, it's like probably, you know, here, here, or like, I don't know, I'm like off the map somewhere. I don't know where you'd put yourself. Where would you put yourself in the bipartisan landscape of America? I don't know, but I do know we have both here. And somehow we have to work that out together. We have progressives and conservatives in this room right now. And somehow love has to rise above it. Justice has to rise above it. And the ability to lay down our rights and be put in the middle of it for the sake of others has to happen. Amen. Let me pray for us as we move. And so, Lord, we come before you.